there is nothing worth living for unless it is worth dying for. My grandmother lived a life devoted to Jesus, and today her talks have been made available in their original form. So you too can be built up through the insights and mysteries God revealed to her throughout her ministry. Now, without further ado, here is Elizabeth Elliot. Marriage is both a revolution and a revelation. And I've used those words because I think that there is no word that more adequately describes the enormity, the enormous intensity of the change which has to come about in our lives when we, be, when we become married people. We expect a certain amount of change. We can't possibly foresee all that it's going to mean. And as Mike Mason has said in his book, The Mystery of Marriage, it's kind of like having a tree in the living room. All of a sudden, there are all kinds of changes and revolutions and revelations in our lives. But it is an awesome privilege to have a husband or a wife, to be given another human being in a special way as a gift from God in a way that no other two human beings can relate. And I think of what marriage is and what marriage does, what love does, I should say. So marriage is, first of all, a revolution, and that's what I'm going to be talking about tonight. You have, I think, the titles of my talks. The first talk would be entitled, Love gives up itself. Some of you may know that I have a radio program, and I get all kinds of response to that, most of it very good. Most of the people who don't like me, I'm sure, shut me off fast. But occasionally, I get letters of criticism, and I had a letter from one lady saying that if I was going to try to tread on the ground of the psychiatrist or the psychologist, I better go and get a degree in psychiatry or psychology. I better stick rather with the Bible. Well, it is my intention always to stick with the Bible. And we will have time for questions and answers tomorrow. And if you have questions of any nature at all, please write them down. And I'll try to deal with as many as I can. But it is my purpose to back up everything that I say with the scriptures. There will be many things which I say which may be purely opinions, and I would suppose that it will be fairly obvious to you that they are merely my opinions, and you're perfectly free to discard those. But I would hope you'd be much slower to discard anything which I can back up with scripture. So this seminar is not, by any means, a sociological study. It's not a historical study, it's not psycho psychological, nor will it be a sexual study. And I think in that it differs from most of the other seminars on marriage. People who have authority in those fields have very different things to say. But I see marriage primarily as a theological mystery of a profound spiritual character. And this is 
the angle from which I would hope that we can look at it during these four sessions. It is a theological mystery with profound spiritual character, mysterious dimensions. It is ordained by Christ, and it represents the greatest mystery that we know anything about, which is the mystery of Christ in the church. And that is, to me, the, the heart, the very deepest thing that we know about marriage. In fact, God chose the analogy of marriage to represent the deepest truth that we know anything about in the spiritual realm, the relationship between Christ, who calls himself the bridegroom, and the church, who is called the bride in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, we find the same imagery used to describe the relationship between God as bridegroom and his people Israel as bride. And when Israel went off after other gods, they were committing adultery. They were whoring, God said. So we must constantly be going back and forth between the very human, down-to-earth reality of marriage and what it means for a sinful man to live with a sinful woman 365 days a year and somehow or other make a go of it and get along, and this deep spiritual mystery of the relationship between Christ and the church. And I think the more we can understand the connection there, the more we will be able to act in marriage as God intended us to act. So, First of all, marriage is, I said I would tell you what marriage is and what love does, marriage is a total surrender of the self to another person. And that is revolutionary. We are born rebels, aren't we? We are born with the attitude that I am going to do my thing and nobody is going to tell me what to do and don't try because this is my life and I'm going to live my life in my way and you can like it or lump it. Well, you can get away with a certain measure of that as long as you're not married. We all have many other human relationships and we're going to make those human relationships very tough and very difficult if we do continue in that frame of mind. But we can get away with it to a certain extent, but you just cannot possibly get away with that in a marriage, not for very long. The woman surrenders herself to the man in a very different way than the man surrenders to the woman. And I don't suppose that very many of you men ever thought about surrendering yourself to a woman, and that really is not the imagery that God intends, because the husband is standing in the place of Christ, and so he is the one who initiates, he is the wooer, he is the one who wins, he is the one who protects and provides for and cherishes his wife. And he is the leader while she is the responder. Now we're going to get into more of what all that means tomorrow. But there is a sense in which marriage involves a total surrender of the self. And this means sacrifice. If you don't Remember one other word out of everything that I have to say. Please remember the word sacrifice. And when I see marriages falling apart 
and I get piles and piles of letters from people whose marriages are in trouble asking me for advice and counsel. What I want to say to them is there is nothing wrong with a marriage that sacrifice wouldn't heal. And of course I'm called oversimplistic and that's oversimplification and that'll never work and what in the world are you talking about? But I hope that I can explain in, these, in this time together what I mean by that. But it starts with this idea of self-surrender. When I think of the word sacrifice as a Christian, I don't think primarily of loss and privation as much as offering and offering. And the man comes to this woman that he's fallen madly in love with and he can't live without, and he offers himself to her. I'll never forget when my husband, Addison Leach, was wooing me. He was a widower of 60 years old, and I was a widow of 42. And he wrote me what I used to call his geriatric letter. He wrote, this was before he had actually said, will you marry me, but it was very obvious to me that he was closing in for the kill. <laughs> and he outlined some of the things that I could expect if I was going to marry an old man. And he wanted to be very straightforward with me and say, now look, you've got to take a look at this. 18 years is a big difference. You've been a widow once. You're probably going to be a widow again. Now you've got to face this. And he outlines the fact that one of these days I was going to have to start cleaning his glasses, and then another day I was going to have to take over the driving, and then he, a whole more odious list of things that I might have to do. And having said all that, at the end of the letter he said, but having pointed out all of these things that you have to face, here I am, all of me, for you forever. But what kind of an offer is that? And I thought, isn't that an analogy of our offering ourselves as a living sacrifice to God? What do we have to offer when it comes right down to it? What is God taking on when I make my body a living sacrifice and say, Lord, here I am, all of me for you forever? But what kind of an offer is that? What is he getting? So there is the surrender of the self. And that was exactly what Ad was making, a surrender of this aging body, which he felt was certainly not much of an offer, not very attractive, but he was hoping that I might be willing to accept it. And I was dying to surrender myself to him. There was nothing in the world that I wanted so much as to belong to that man. And I think that that's the deep instinct, the deep heart's desire of almost every woman that I've ever talked to. Now, I have to be careful and say almost because I've had a few women tell me that they were greatly insulted by that suggestion. They did not want to surrender themselves to any man, and they were very happy with their singleness, and you have insulted us, they said. So I need to be careful about that. But this surrender of the self is an analogy of the spiritual life which applies to this institution of marriage. I want to give you an overview 
of, this, of how this analogy works. The conditions of discipleship were three. Jesus said, if you want to be my disciple, you must give up your right to yourself, and you must take up your cross and follow me. And I think that that is exactly the order in which a husband and a wife ought to look at their responsibilities in marriage. First of all, you give up your right to yourself. And we'll get into some of the things that I mean by that. And when I say take up the cross, it's take up all that is involved in daily living together. Take up your cross daily, Jesus said. And lastly, follow me, obey, fulfill the responsibilities which life is going to unfold little by little as you walk together. And these also match the three conditions that Jesus described. He said, if you get married, then the husband must leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and they must become one flesh. So that leaving is like the relinquishment of giving up your right to yourself, and the cleaving is taking up the responsibilities of cleaving only to this one and forsaking all others, and I'm pretty sure that that's one of the reasons why we see so many young men nowadays who are reaching the age of 30 and 35 and 40, and they're still not married. I have a few nephews that I'm always working on because they're getting into that age bracket. Several of them are already past 30, and they're not married. And when I question them on this, it seems very clear to me that the problem is they don't want to cleave only to this one. They like to play the whole field, and they've got all sorts of very attractive girlfriends. And who wants to narrow it down to one and forsake all others, as the marital vows put it? So leaving and cleaving and becoming one, those are all analogous to exactly what we're supposed to do in the spiritual life. All right, now for you, those of you who are desperately struggling to figure out where is the outline, where is this woman going, let me give you point one. The nature of love. And here again, we are up against revolutionary ideas from the scriptures. Because what the world calls love amounts to not very much more than sentiment, mood, feeling, emotion, temperament, or maybe, God help us all, only a glandular condition. Now love, according to scripture, is none of the above. It is not mood, feeling, temperament, sentiment, emotion, or a glandular condition. In fact, the love which I find described in scripture hasn't anything to do with any of those things, nothing whatsoever. I know that many young people nowadays are writing their own, they call them marriage vows. My heart sinks when I hear that they're going to do this because invariably it seems to be not vows but a description of how they happen to feel about each other on that particular day. And you and I could give them a few clues about how long those particular feelings are likely to last. Very likely not more than 24 hours. <laughs> those particular feelings and that mood, you know, all the beautiful, the white dress and the veil and the beautiful bridesmaids and these terribly handsome men standing up the front, 
All of that contributes to a mood, a feeling of what the world would call love. But what is the nature of love according to scripture? In 1 John 3.16, we have a very clear statement. Most of you could probably quote John 3.16 for me, but I wonder how many of you know 1 John 3.16 by heart. This is what it says. It is by this that we know what love is, that Christ laid down his life for us. And we in turn, we in our turn are bound to lay down our lives for our brothers. Love means sacrifice. That's what love is. Let me read the verse again. It is by this that we know what love is, that Christ laid down his life for us. And we, in our turn, are bound to lay down our lives for our brothers. That's love. Love is stronger than death. Love gives up itself. Love lays down its life. Somebody just sent me a clipping from the Sarasota Herald Tribune, an article written by somebody named Nancy Smith called Out of the Shadow of the Baby Boom. It's a very interesting analogy of, an, excuse me, a very, it's a very interesting analysis of the baby boomers and what characterizes them. She is a member of the baby boom generation. And it's a very long article, but I want to read you the last part of it. She says, the mystery of the opposite sex is not what it used to be. It has been replaced by confusion. The lines have blurred. The roles are less rigid and clear. Men cry, women pay for lunch. Men wear ponytails, women wear biker shorts. This is all okay, but when a friendship turns intimate, we are playing a new game for which the new rules have not been written. Some of us have caught up with liberation rhetoric. Some haven't. You can't be sure if your lunch partner will freak if you offer to pay for him or her, or if they will freak if you don't. Certainly it's no big deal to be single anymore, single meaning not having a boyfriend or girlfriend. Now get this. As for marriage, some of us look at it as giving up. That is, giving up the search, the quest for the better job, the better city, the better partner, the better life. Settling down means this is as good as it gets, this is as good as I get, this is all I want. So what happens to a generation that seems to have so many options? It wallows in ambivalence. Having it all can be a burden. Our lives are so open, the choice is endless. We need to make decisions, but we don't want to leave anything out. We are grown-up children wearing the suit but keeping the ponytail. We are migrants in search of a more perfect home. We are seriously unserious. We are confident neurotics. We are undecided, leaving the doors open. We are pending. I thought that was an astute analysis of what's happening. And I think it helps us to understand these indecisive men. They don't want to give up. 
They don't want to close down the options. And that's exactly what my nephew Pete said to me after he brings by all these lovely girls. One after another, he calls me up and he tells me he's got a new girlfriend. Can he run her by? And so he brings her over for tea, and I have a good look at her. And afterwards, he calls me, and he says, well, what did you think? Well, she's beautiful. She's lovely. She seems to be a Christian. She was a lady. I thought she was very feminine. Pete, what is wrong with you? And he says, but you remember Linda? You remember Joe? Do you remember Susie? I mean, they were all beautiful. And, well, I don't know. I just, um, I'm pending. That's really what it boils down to, isn't it? As for marriage, some of, it look, some of us look at it as giving up. And that is exactly what I had planned to say to you before I got that clipping. But marriage is giving up. It is giving up all the rest of the options. It is giving up your childhood. And we don't want to do that either, do we? Paul says, when I became a man, I put away childish things. But there are an awful lot of men, physically men, who are still playing all kinds of games. I'm convinced that the American obsession with sports is one of the symptoms. Now, I'm not going to get into this. I know I'm <laughs> stepping on all kinds of toes here. But what about this business of men with dirt bikes and I don't know what you call those tremendous wheeled vehicles that go into mud. I've seen them on TV. It's just unbelievable that these full-grown men are spending money and time and energy on that kind of thing. But the hang gliding and the scuba diving, we see scuba diving in front of our house. We live on the ocean. Every Saturday and Sunday, there are these men out there scuba diving for what? For fun, when they should be home with their children and their wives and fixing things around the house, you know, and taking male responsibility, in other words. So the nature of love is sacrifice. Marriage is giving up yourself. Love means giving up yourself. That is the nature of love. Now, that is revolutionary, isn't it? It's impossible to love without sacrifice. I have a dear friend, an old lady who died when she was about 92. She was a single woman, but she was a very wise lady, and she was a great lover of dogs, as I am. We had lots in common there. We both loved Scottish terriers, particularly. And she said to me, the measure of your love for dogs is the measure in which you are willing to be inconvenienced. And I thought, well, that's a good definition of the measure of my love for anybody. The measure of your love for children is certainly the measure of your love to be inconvenienced. My husband, Ad Leach, who had three daughters, said that babies are a lot of trouble at both ends. And that's true, isn't it? I mean, there's a lot tremendous amount of inconvenience, and much more than inconvenience, real sacrifice. And that is exactly what love is about. Now, I'd like you to stop right here and think of the sacrifices involved in your marriage. Did you think first of the sacrifices you made or the sacrifices your spouse made? Probably most of us thought about the sacrifices we made. And let's be honest with ourselves, there are sacrifices. 
Now, I've never seen a bride walking down the aisle sobbing her heart out because she was going to be making all these sacrifices for this very handsome man standing, standing down there in the front of the church waiting for her. The bride is radiant. They say all brides are beautiful. It's the happiest day of her life. She is giving up a whole lot of things, but that's not what she's thinking about. She's thinking about what she's getting. And here's a spiritual analogy again, isn't it? When we make our bodies a living sacrifice to God, holy, acceptable unto him. What are we getting in return? Eternal bliss, fulfillment, joy. The expulsive power of a new affection. So when that bride walks down the aisle and she is going to give up her name, I hope, I hope she's not one who refuses to give up her name, She's going to give up her independence. She's going to give up her privacy. She loses the prerogative to make unilateral decisions, and so does the groom. He gives up his privacy. He gives up his independence. He takes on awesome responsibility, frightful responsibility, if he really thinks through it. And Neither one is thinking about all those sacrifices because he loves. Love gives up itself so gladly that there's hardly a thought at the beginning. So you deny yourself, Jesus said, if you're going to be my disciple. You give up your right to yourself. The old uh, King James Version says, if, anyone, if any man would be my disciple, he must deny himself, which means give up your right to yourself, or say no to yourself. Different translations have it different ways. And take up your cross and follow. So self-denial, self-sacrifice, self-giving, relinquishment, surrender, these are all the elements of love. And I hope that some of you are already beginning to think, maybe that's where I failed. I thought of marriage as being a wonderful gift, gift that I'm getting. I didn't really think enough about the fact that I am to be a gift to this person, which is going to entail sacrifice. That I am to lay down my life for this person. You see, the world is telling us exactly the opposite, isn't it? The world is saying, do your own thing. Don't get caught in a compassion trap. Women especially, don't live your lives for your husband. Well, I have been single many more years than I have been married. As you know now, Lars has already told you how many years I've been married altogether, and you can certainly see the evidence in front of you that that does not constitute by any means half of my life. So I have been single. And I wanted, with all my heart, to surrender my independence, to give up my right to myself. And when I fell in love with each one of these three Christian husbands that God gave me, it was the easiest thing in the world for me to say yes. Yes, I surrender. Yes, I want to give myself to you. It was the most glorious moment, that moment when you cannot help giving yourself because you're so madly in love. 
You long to surrender, and the citadel of your heart has been breached, and it is taken. And then what happens? Well, now we're down to point two. The glory of sacrifice. We've been talking about the nature of love, which is sacrifice. It is self-giving. Now I want to talk about the glory of sacrifice. And it doesn't seem all that glorious when we use that word, does it? The bride is not weeping because she's not thinking of sacrifice at all. But as soon as the reality hits, it doesn't look very glorious, does it? It can be very tough. When the disciples heard the call of Jesus, come and follow me, we read that Matthew immediately left his tax collector's booth and several of the other disciples left their nets. The sons of Zebedee left Zebedee. They left their boats and their nets. We don't read a word about how bad they felt about it. They just leaped up and followed him and left everything behind, little imagining the cost of what that following was going to mean. When Jesus comes to you and me and says, do you want to be my disciple? He never gives us a blueprint of what's going to be involved. He does not outline the whole will of God for our lives and say, do you like this? Will you take it? He simply says, do you love me? Will you trust me? Well, then, be my disciple. And that means giving up your right to yourself and taking up your cross and follow me, following me. The glory of sacrifice at the beginning looks great. And I talked to many starry-eyed young people who would love to be missionaries. They'd love to work overseas. They'd love to do something really tough for God. And I certainly was one of those myself. I think back to all the missionary heroes that I had and the missionary books that I read. And one of the poems that I memorized somewhere or other along the way came to me when finally I really believed that God had called me to be a foreign missionary. And it expressed exactly the way I felt. I heard him call, come follow. That was all. My gold grew dim. My soul went after him. Who would not follow if they heard him call? You don't know what the cost is going to be. And nobody could possibly be ready to accept previews of all the coming attractions involved in discipleship. Jesus said to his disciples, I have many things to tell you, but you can't bear them now. And a bridegroom might say that to a bride, too, mightn't he? I have many things to reveal to you about who I am that in all these weeks or months or maybe years of acquaintance, you don't have a clue about. But of course, the bridegroom has very little clue about them himself because marriage is a revelation as well as a revolution. We don't really know ourselves until we are in an intimate relationship with another fallible human being. One of the things that I reminded my daughter of in this little book that I mentioned, Let Me Be a Woman, 
was that she was going to be marrying a sinner. There isn't anything else to marry. And don't you forget that your husband or your wife is also married to a sinner. And we do not know what is going to be in that prize package. This same lady that told me how much she loved dogs and said, the measure of your love is the measure in which you're willing to be inconvenienced. She said to me one day, she said, you know, Betty dear, we're none of us prize packages. Just look for the essentials and skip the rest. And I thought, well, that's very good advice, very wise advice, especially after you get married. <laughs> because this prize package that you certainly thought you were getting or you would never have married him or her turns out to be a surprise package, doesn't it? There are all kinds of things in there that you were not expecting. And whenever you, talk, whenever you hear anybody explain why they got a divorce, it seems as though in every case they'll say, well, we've grown apart. She's not the woman I married. I'm not the woman who married him. He's not the man I married. We've changed so much. Well, I want to say, so what else is new? What did you think you were getting? If you're marrying a real live human being, there are going to be many changes. And there are going to be many revelations. And there are going to be many revolutions in your life if you're going to make it work out. We can't know the cost in advance. And we are all, let's face it, incompatible. I remember, I think it was here in Wisconsin, I heard Jill Briscoe talk many years ago to a large audience. And she said, I'm going to let you in on a secret. Did you know that Stuart and I are incompatible? And she said, we live with an incompatible, I've forgotten how many children she has, an incompatible son, an incompatible daughter, and an incompatible dog, and an incompatible cat. And it takes a whole lot of the grace of God for us to get along for even one day at a time. And she said, sometimes when Stuart is away, she'll get a phone call, and the lady says she wants to talk to the pastor, and Jill says, well, I'm sorry, he's out of town. Could I help you? And the lady's in tears, and she says, no, I need to talk to the pastor. It's a very personal matter. And Jill has, on a few occasions, had the temerity to say, well, I bet I know what your problem is. I bet you want a divorce. And the lady will say, well, how did you know? And she says, well, I, I'm just guessing, but Stuart doesn't do divorces. <laughs> and the lady says... Well, then Jill, Jill's next. I'm sure I'm not quoting her accurately, so if you know Jill Briscoe, why well, you tell her that I probably misquoted her all over the place, but I think I can make the point accurately. Um, somewhere in the dialogue, she says, I bet I know what your problem is. Incompatibility. And the lady gasps and says, well, how did you know? And she says, well, I just had a sneaking suspicion that that might be it, because every now and then I hear people talk about incompatibility. But you know, incompatibility is not a reason for divorce. It's a reason for marriage. We're all incompatible. And I think that's absolutely true. I have had, as Lars told you, three husbands. I still have number three. He's still sitting out there. He's still feeling OK, as far as I know. <laughs> And we're both hoping that there is no number four waiting in the wings. But all of them are very different. 
And I know that each of them had some of the same kinds of difficulties with me, but I had difficulties, different kinds of difficulties with each of them, and there was a sense in which I was incompatible with each of them. Now, don't go out of here and say that I've had very bad marriages. They were wonderful marriages, both of the first two and the present one. But I know myself to be a sinner. And so where is this glory of sacrifice that we look at? We can't know the cost in advance. We don't see what the sacrifices are going to be. And it turns out that we are incompatible. And yet, we are building a home in love. We are building a new entity, a place, an arena, where the mystery of Christ and the Church is to be enacted. I like to think of the Christian home as a theater in which this tremendous spiritual drama is enacted of Christ and the Church. And the husband is enacting the part of Christ, and the wife is enacting the part of the Church, and we play out this drama as we live together as human beings, down-to-earth, fallible sinners. If we're going to live together 365 days a year, it's going to take a whole lot of grace of God and a whole lot of saying, I'm sorry, please forgive me, and a whole lot of rolling with the punches, isn't it? Now, the third thing that I want to say is that every sacrifice, according to Mark 9, is to be salted with fire. Now, I don't really know what that verse means, and I have never found anybody that has been able to expound it very clearly to me. But there is something that my imagination gets a hold of here. In the Old Testament, salt was used in some of the sacrifices. But salted with fire, that's not a phrase that occurs in the Old Testament. And in that passage, Mark 9, verses 43 to 50, let me read that from the New English Translation. If your hand is your undoing, cut it off. It is better for you to enter into life maimed than to keep both hands and go to hell and the unquenchable fire. And if your foot is your undoing, cut it off. It's better to enter into life a cripple than to keep both your feet and be thrown into hell. And if it is your eye, tear it out. It is better to enter into the kingdom of God with one eye than to keep both eyes and be thrown into hell, where the devouring worm never dies and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Now Jesus is making some outrageous statements here. He's describing the price of discipleship. And he's startling these multitudes. Mind you, Jesus is not just talking to the disciples here, this intimate small group. He's talking to the multitudes. Do you think he's going to sell these concepts? Is he going to win a popularity contest with this kind of talk? But he says, you're going to have to lose some perfectly legitimate things. You know, people sometimes wonder, now why would God take away this great gift that he had given me? 
What would be wrong with that? What was wrong with this or that that I lost? If your house burns down, for example, or if you lose something valuable, it doesn't necessarily mean that there's something wrong with it. It means that God has a lesson here to teach you. And there's certainly nothing wrong with your hand and your foot. Those are parts of the body that God has created. And the eye we would consider one of the most essential parts of the body, but Jesus said it's better to enter into the kingdom of God with one eye than to keep both eyes and be thrown into hell where the devouring worm never dies and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is a good thing, but if the salt loses its saltness, what will you season it with? And I take that to mean that the sacrifice is going to be costly. It's a glorious thing because it means love and creating an entity in which love is ruling. But it is also going to be costly. Now, how long did it take for you to discover that you were going to have to make some sacrifices? I've just read a very excellent and practical book called By Love Refined by Alice von Hildebrand. And it's just a series of letters to a niece who has just gotten married. And she deals with practically every question that a newlywed could ever ask. And she tells how when she herself, Alice von Hildebrand, was married, it irritated her that her husband was accustomed to leaving the soap in a pool of water in the soap dish. So that when she came into the bathroom, it was a squishy mass of jelly. And that just infuriated her. And so she spoke to him about it. And it had never crossed his mind to dry the soap. And she said, from then on, he always dried the soap. And she said, for the rest of our married life, he dried the soap so well that I couldn't tell whether he would actually used any soap or not. <laughs> But she said, I can't think of that tiny sacrifice that he made for love without a great wave of loving gratitude. I have another friend who told me that when she was married, she couldn't understand why her husband wanted her to wash the cans from canned food. When she emptied a can of soup or can of peas, she threw the can into the trash. Well, this man had grown up on a farm where rats were a real problem. So they didn't throw things into the trash unless they were washed. And so he said, I want you to wash the cans. And she just thought, this is absurd. This is ridiculous. We have a garbage pickup every other day. And so she argued with him about it. And she said it didn't change his mind. He wanted those cans washed. Well, she said, I love him. And so I washed the cans. Now, you know, that is such a tiny thing, but it can be such a big thing. And it can be the sort of thing in which a wife digs in her heels and says, you're not going to tell me to do something like this. I'm not going to do it. Well, how much does it cost when it comes right down to it? How much does it really cost to love somebody enough to dry the soap, roll the toothpaste tube, Put the cap back on the toothpaste, wash the cans. 
but is there anybody here who can't think of some little tiny thing that just drove you up the wall about that husband of yours or that wife of yours? Oprah Winfrey had a program a couple of weeks ago on this very thing, asking couples to tell the thing about from the husband's point of view, which was the thing in, that his wife did that still drove him up the wall and the thing that the wife told about her husband. And it was amazing how many wives' complaint was the same, that their husbands would promise to fix some little thing around the house. And somehow or other, that little thing stayed for weeks and months. And I'm not going to tell you about the little thing in our house that isn't fixed yet. <laughs> but I remember my husband, Ad Leach, telling about how somebody broke a window. And he said, you know, it's not getting the window fixed that's the big problem. It's having your wife say to you every day, when are you going to get that window fixed that drives you crazy? The cost is not some huge sacrifice that we think very much about most of the time. It's those tiny little things which indicate our attitude toward our spouse. Am I willing to lay down my life? Now, how do I lay down my life for my spouse? Not usually in anything very heroic, but in the willingness to say no to myself. The willingness to give up the right to be right. Now, I like to be right. I not only want to be right, but I want to be recognized as being right. And as somebody has said, the route to a happy marriage is whenever you're wrong, admit it. And whenever you're right, shut up. I want to be right. I don't want to be wrong. And so I'm an arguer. I'm a debater. And unfortunately, Lars realizes he's stuck with somebody who was actually a champion debater in college. And this, is, this has all sorts of problems. <laughs> so he gets salted with fire. I mean, he has to make all kinds of little sacrifices that he doesn't make a big deal out of. But we do those. We do make a big deal very often, don't we? I've heard many, many stories of the first revelation of problems in marriage, and usually they occur within 24 hours. I'm not sure exactly whether it was 24 hours after I married my second husband. I, I remember 24 hours after I married Jim Elliott that something made me mad. I've completely forgotten what it was. But I was so shocked at myself because I thought, I love this man so much that I could never be mad at him, and never once during our engagement was I angry with him. Never once. And it was a horrifying revelation the very day after our wedding to find out that here I was, gritting my teeth about something that Jim had done or said. And I'm glad that I've forgotten it now. But at least one day, maybe two days after I married Ad Leach, we were sitting in the hotel room, and at that point I had a 13-year-old daughter who had been my only attendant in our wedding, and she had gone with a friend back to New Hampshire where we lived. And I sat down to write a letter to my daughter. 
And suddenly I realized that there was a thundering silence on the other side of the room. And I looked over, and my husband looked as though he was furious about something. And I didn't know what it was, and I didn't say anything, and I just kept on writing the letter. And the silence went on and on. And, of course, I was completely absorbed. But finally, later that evening, after we had eaten a silent dinner, I found out that I had hurt Ad by writing that letter. I was floored. I said, what was wrong with writing a letter to my 13-year-old daughter? He said, we're on our honeymoon. He said, you cut me out. You didn't. I said, what did you expect me to do? He said, you didn't say. I'm going to write a letter to Valerie. What a tiny thing. But he was really hurt. And I was thoughtless and selfish in not having said something about it. I had to learn that this man was sensitive in a way that I wouldn't be sensitive. Do you know anything about that kind of thing? You men, you can be hurt in ways that we women can't even imagine. And I suppose psychiatrists sometimes would explain it as being the male ego. And we women are told that the male ego is very fragile and it has to be handled very gingerly. And I don't always handle things with kid gloves, not by any means. In fact, Jim told me I had a sledgehammer personality. <laughs> and my husband, Ad, told me that I didn't call a spade a spade, I called it a bloody shovel. <laughs> and I don't know whether Lars has come up with any of those quotable quotes yet, but he's not going to admit to one. But love gives itself. Love gives up its rights. Love always means sacrifice. We sometimes want the splendor and the glory of offering ourselves without the sacrifice of commitment. In the spiritual realm, we'd like to do heroic things, wouldn't we? We'd like to be seen as spiritual leaders. We'd like to do something for God that would be hailed as a great work for God. We want the splendor of self-offering without the salt and the fire and the sacrifice. And it's only the vows that carry us through. You know, the, the ancient fathers knew exactly what they were doing when they required vows to be pronounced before God and witnesses in the wedding ceremony, because the vows of the ancient fathers and the vows of the prayer books are not a description of how the husband and wife happen to feel about each other on that particular day, but they are a statement of a course that has been irrevocably chosen. Till death us do part. For richer, for poorer, for better, for worse, in sickness and in health. And when somebody decides to drop out of a marriage and unload the partner, it's usually because they didn't expect it to be poorer and worse and sickness. And yet they had made those vows. And it is the vows that carry you through when things get poorer and worse and when sickness comes 
and when a job is lost. There are many areas of conflict where you have to go back to those vows. Well, I see that my time is up. Let me go over those three points again. And in case you feel that I've just been far too abstract and theoretical tonight, I hope that you will be encouraged to come back tomorrow because we, we are going to get down into much more of the nitty-gritty. But I just feel so strongly about the nature of marriage itself. If we could just get our teeth into what the scripture makes marriage out to be, a deep spiritual mystery which involves the same spiritual mystery that we see in the cross of Jesus Christ. I think it's going to sort out a good many things that psychology and sociology are never going to sort out for us. First of all, we looked at the nature of love. It's not a mood or a feeling or a temperament or a sentiment or an emotion. It is a revolution. It means sacrifice. Secondly, we looked at the glory of sacrifice. There is always a reward. There are eternal rewards and there are temporal rewards when sacrifice is made. And lastly, every sacrifice must be salted with fire. Our vows carry us through those costly times. When you go home tonight, start asking yourself, not your spouse, have I been giving myself for this person? Is there some new way that I can think of in which I can give up my right to myself, back off, shut up, not be seen to be right necessarily, just let something go? And let's ask God to open our eyes to this revolution and revelation. God bless you. I pray you've been encouraged and inspired by what you've heard today. And will keep joining us here and on social media for my granny's inspiration. Until then, remember, the eternal God is your refuge and underneath are the everlasting arms.